Hey friends, what's up? And welcome back to What's Her Fantasy, a laissez-faire literary podcast all about fantasy books. And today we're taking it back. Not that far, uh, but we're going back to February of 2022. Yes, February of this year, just a couple, couple, two, three, seven months ago when I was scrolling on TikTok. And to be honest, I was a little depressed. Uh, well, I'm not a little depressed. I was pretty depressed. I needed... I just needed something and I saw just a one random post that said someone had read this book that got them back into reading and I, the book was called A Court of Thorns and Roses by Sarah J Mass. and I said well it can't hurt I'm gonna try that. I bought it and my life has never been the same. <laughs> You wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here without it. I mean, here, <laughs> that just went very deep. I meant here on the podcast, but I don't know. Much can be said. It really did have a massive effect on me, on my life, on how I spent my time. I fell in love with the story. I fell in love with the characters. And I am so excited to sit here and talk to all of you about it today. Before we get into this story and all of my feelings about it um, to this day, I'm still having new feelings about it. Uh, I want to kind of give a roadmap of what this is going to look like. This book is part of a series. Uh, right now, there are... <laughs> I pause because... There are technically, well, there are technically 4.5 books in this series. But for the sake of ease, let's say there are five books out in the series. There are a few more that are um, scheduled to come out in the coming years. The series, it's incredible. It's just incredible. Okay. But the series, that's not what I was going to say. But I, that just, I became possessed and that just came out of me. Um, the series has a lot of twists and turns and you look at the books differently as you reread them once you know what happens in the series. But I want this episode to remain spoiler free for the rest of the series in case someone is just reading the first book and um, they want to just have some content that's just about how I felt about the first book and see if that's relatable to them. What I'm going to do after this is post uh, immediately a part B episode that talks about this book through the lens of the rest of the books in this series and the rest of Sarah's books. And I can't say why that's important um, in this episode because it's spoiler free, but I think that there's a lot of foreshadowing that happens um, for the rest of the series that is really interesting um, on a second or third or fourth reread. Um, and so those are some of the things I want to talk about. So I will talk about those in the part B episode. Just know that there will be spoilers for the rest of Sarah J. Mass books in that part B episode. So if you want to avoid those spoilers, then skip that episode. And I will give that spoiler warning at the beginning of that episode as well. But why are we talking about that episode let's talk about this episode today we're talking about like I said uh, I feel like I need to drum roll I went to the grocery store and bought roses and they're sitting here and I'm looking at them because I'm just I need every single bit I need to like wring every single bit of emotion out of this book right now that's how stoked I am to be chatting about it okay let's give it the good old I'm like you can hear me I'm like I don't know like an evil villain rubbing my hands together with an evil plan. Let's give it the good old three words I would use to describe this book. The first word that I would use is something that I have made up and it is fairy tale-esque. It's a Beauty and the Beast retelling. So that's a bit what it's known for. And it just gives you the comfort that you feel when you, you know, were younger and heard a fairy tale. Or you think about sort of like magical lands and magical fairy tale tales. Tale tales. Um, so that's the first word that I would use to describe this book. The second word that I would use to describe this slow burn. Yes, it's a slow burn, which I oh, love a good slow burn. Uh, is kindling. So this starts a fire that you can't douse. I still haven't doused it. It's it's raging for and I, I you know I've obviously read uh, at this point all of not only all of these books but all of Sarah J. Mass's books and this series in particular. It's it is a burning and in a good way. <laughs> and then the third word that I would use to describe this book is immersive. The world just calls to you. The story brings you in. Even in in some of the other series I've read, I don't want to go live in those places that I've heard about. But Prithian, the 
the place that this book takes place. I want to go there so badly. Honestly, I cried for weeks when I realized that I would never be able to go there. So it's just immersive. You you feel so just submerged in the world. Um, so those are the three three. 300 years. Three words that I would use to describe uh, A Court of Thorns and Roses. I have the paperback version. I have the new covered version. And we can talk about the covers at some point in time because I think it's fascinating the way that that all played out. Um, Can't wait. Okay, let's get into it. Starting with, I don't think I've told you this yet. Here we go. I am obsessed with book dedications. I am not the only one. This there is a There is a large group of us. I would say probably, I don't know, Most people, maybe not most people, that's a sweeping generalization. But I've met a lot of people who also like book dedications. I live for them. They are one of my favorite things. And this book dedication is no other. It says, for Josh, because you would go under the mountain for me. I love you. I I remember when I, I picked this up and I read the book dedication and I said, I don't know what the hell that means, but I love it. I don't know what the under the mountain is. Sounds crazy. Um, and then you flip to the next page and you see a, a map. We've already talked about that, so we'll just skip along. You know how much I love maps. This map, though, looks a curious amount like the United Kingdom. And I actually just got back from there. So um, that's why I decided to do uh, this book now, because I was just feeling very Prithian. This story is about uh, a, t- a typical human and fae divided fairy um divided world uh where there are there is a wall that separates these two worlds and the mortal lands are below and the lands of prithian are um the fairy uh lands above and they're divided up into different courts so there's the spring court the summer court the winter court and the autumn court those are the um, seasonal courts. And then there are the uh, solar courts. So the day court, the night court, the dawn court. I just felt like it was so unique to open a book and to be like, oh, that's kind of cool. There's, It's called the spring court. It's called the winter court. I just, I don't know. I was a fan at how that played out. And it started to bring this sort of magical quality to what I was going to get myself into. I read the first 30 pages of this and I immediately picked up the phone and texted my brother because my sister-in-law, his wife, who I will refer to as my sister because she's my sister. They've been married for, I don't know, 15 years at this point. And I knew her before. Anyway, anyways, I texted him and I said, hey, you got to get Jess this book for her birthday because I'm loving it. And I know she's a reader um, and she actually had been trying to get me to read Outlander for, I have her book. I have her first Outlander book. I've had it for 10 years and I feel really guilty about that. I'm going to send it back to her one day. I'm going to read it and send it back to her. I haven't read it. I'm not a big fan of historical fiction. So uh, that's where I've struggled with that one. But I I really should. I texted him. I said, you need to have Jessica read this. Buy it for her for her birthday. Here it's a little spicy. Speaking of spicy, let's talk about the spice level of the first book of A Court of Thorns and Roses. It is, so from my understanding, and I could be wrong about some of this stuff. Like I said, laissez-faire, I'm an unreliable narrator, but this is what I've heard. Word on the streets, word on the talk is um, is that when Sarah was writing this series originally, um, it was skewed more towards YA. And so um, even though it's a little... YA or new adult. It's it's not it's not very spicy. I think there's like one or two sexual scenes in this book and they don't go into great detail. They're not fade to black completely, but um they're they're not su- they're not super spicy. <laughs> but they do it is a slow burn. And that's one of the things um that I actually really liked about the book was that it was a slow burn. So my brother actually did end up buying the book for um, my sister and she devoured the entire thing. She has been with me every step of the way on every new series. (laughs) I know that I can always count on her. She's a ride or die book buddy bestie. She will read anything with me. She actually finished what um, Lies Beyond the Veil and what Hunts in the Shadows. Uh, Spoiler alert, I DNF'd uh, what hunts in the shadows. I couldn't, I couldn't finish it. It was, it, it was just not for me. And 
I it's actually one of the first books that I've ever not finished. Um, but so if you're waiting and holding out for an, another episode on um, on the What Lies Beyond the Veil or of Flesh and Bone series, I think that's what it's called. Um, it's not coming. But she she and I have just really had such a cool opportunity to connect over these books. We've fallen in love with the different characters. We've mispronounced all the names together. Um, and uh, yeah, she's she's my main squeeze when it comes to my book juice. So a um, little shout out. Speaking of the pronunciation of names, this book is about a um, girl named Feyre. And there is, there I don't know, there's a lot of like scuttlebutt about how to pronounce her name that I've seen. But it is blatantly spelled out in the book. Two syllables, Feyre. And they spell it out. And it's, thank you, Sarah, for doing that for one character. Because, you know, we all have succumbed to some of the others uh, and the big debates around some of those, which we'll talk about uh, as we get a little bit further into this book but so it's a it's a story about a girl named Feyre who is a human and she lives um somewhat close to this wall that divides the uh, fairyland of Prithian with the um human world of the human world I don't know what it's called and she you know it's funny when I first read this series I thought that she was the middle of three sisters but it turns out she's the youngest of three sisters and I wish I had known that and paid attention to that going in because I feel like I would have had a I have a ton of sympathy for Feyre she's one of my favorite main characters I love her but I think I would have had more sympathy for her if I realized she was the youngest at the forefront not that I didn't have sympathy for her at all because I do I have an incredible amount of sympathy for her as a character but I just part of my brain thought that she was the middle sister and so there was something about taking care of her family that I don't know shouldn't be any child's responsibility but it just made a little bit more sense to me and so I I am did I've reread this book multiple times after I've read the rest of the series um and then I just recently while I was in uh London and Scotland did the audiobook which funny funny thing that I've learned about myself. Life's all about learning about yourself, right? And then when you think you know yourself, a new version reads a, re, a, a girl. When you think you know yourself, then you sit down and you read a book called A Court of Thorns and Roses and a new version of you just like, I don't know, jumps out of your skin. But I, I don't like audiobooks. And I never knew that about myself. I thought I just didn't like like the books that I was listening to. But going back and deciding to go through and listen to these on an audiobook, I... I was it was hard for me to get into it and knowing how much I love the story it was just fascinating to me. So um, I know that a lot of people love them. I wish I did, too. But I'm, I'm I don't know. I'm still debating on because I'm going to obviously do a reread of the rest of the series as I'm doing these episodes. I, I think I just want to read them, though. So who knows? So this story is about a girl named Feyre who is, um, again, in an interesting way. She has a family. Her um, she has three. She's one of three sisters. She's the youngest. Her oldest sister's name is Nesta and her middle sister's name is Elaine. She has a father. Her mother passed away. And when her mother was on her deathbed, she made Feyre promise that she would take care of the family. The father had used to be a, you know, a merchant dealer person. He used to have riches and they used to have a lot of um, fancy things. And uh, they lost their wealth because of, I don't know, some bad debts that her dad had. And um, they ended up um, in this little, as Tamlin calls it, a hovel. Tamlin is a character that we'll be, we're introduced to in a little while. But she is there and they're on the brink of starvation. She goes out into the woods and hunts meat for them so that they can eat, <laughs> that they can eat and live. And um, her sisters treat her like absolute fucking garbage. And uh, that's another reason why I thought, I don't know, I just thought they were younger than her. But they're not. They're older, her two older sisters. They Nesta in particular um, is just very cruel to her and unhelpful. And Elaine is is just kind of whiny. But she's out, you know, this book actually starts, the book starts, which I kind of love. It starts very easy. Sometimes like fantasy books will start and there's like 90 pages of world bi bi <laughs> world building. Yes, I'm talking about you, Crescent City, House of Earth and Blood, where you, you just have to get through all of it. And this is not like that. You start, it's a very simple start. It's very easy to get into. She's out hunting. She sees this wolf. 
she wonders if it's a fairy because she knows that um, you can't, you know, shouldn't kill the fairies, and but the fairies can come down and get you. And she also knows that each of these uh, kingdoms or courts in Prithian have a high lord, which is a high fae leader of each of them. So just tuck that little nugget in your brain. But she is hunting. She sees this wolf and she, I don't know, falters And there's a part of her that thinks it's a fairy. There's a part of her that thinks it's not. She shoots it and kills it. And she kills a deer also. And thus starts, it sets the stage, sets everything in motion. And she's killed this creature that she thinks is a wolf. But she, in the last moment before she lets that ash arrow, an ash arrow is one of the only things that can kill a fairy. Side note, she before she lets that ash arrow fly, she has a little bit of a doubt in her mind that it is an actual wolf and thinks it might be a fairy. Okay, so I'm going to fast forward a little bit and basically they're eating that they're eating that delicious uh, deer meat and um, they got coins because they sold the pelt of the wolf and all of a sudden fee fi fo fum beast comes to their house. Knock, knock, knock. Uh, excuse me, you killed a fairy and there is a treaty from the war between the humans and the fae, some of the fae, uh, from 500 years ago and uh, now you got to die. It's a life for life. Oh, but wait. Instead of dying, I can take you. So this big, basically a beast shows up. I'm trying. <laughs> a beast shows up at her front door and demands that whoever killed this fay repay the debt. And the debt is either a life debt or she can, Feyre, can go and live in Prithian for the rest of her days. And she has been told, I mean, everyone has been told on the human side that the Fae are super evil, that they are all these like horrific creatures, that they're, I don't know, they're told a bunch of shit. They're told that they can't tell a lie. They're told not to eat the food, all this stuff. But Feyre chooses to go instead of die. And I uh, tabbed this part because it's just kind of heart-wrenching. Neither one of her sisters made any, I mean, they were frightened, obviously, when this creature came in. It was a very, like, frightening scene. But both of her sisters, like, didn't they, they didn't say a word. And it just goes to her relationship with them and how much she gave and how much they took. It says, Nesta stiffened but said nothing. Both of my sisters said absolutely nothing as I turned toward the open door. I mean, she's about to be like snatched up by this beast creature fairy and be taken away. And both of her sisters just don't say a word. I don't know. Piss me off. So basically she's taken into what she finds out is the spring court. And she doesn't know who her captor is. And she feels like she's going to get taken there. And then she's going to be, you know, like batty batty things are going to happen to her. Um, Spoiler alert, they don't. I mean, they do. Actually, they really do. Um, But there would be five books if they were all bad. I feel like because this book started not slow, but easy in the world building. And then it just kind of builds on itself in the best way. Because all of the world building is in Feyre's internal commentary and sort of like sorting through what she is experiencing as she goes into Prithian, as she's getting to know the, you know, person who's captured her, who it turns out is Tamlin. His name's Tamlin. We find that actually, we find that out pretty soon. Um, His name is Tamlin. There's also another guy there named Lucian, she finds out. But the thing that's so interesting about them is that they both have masks stuck to their face. And I don't know, it's kind of interesting because I was trying to remember in actual Beauty and the Beast if he had a mask, but no, he was just in his beast form the whole time. And this is so interesting because Tamlin can shapeshift and he is the beast who shows up at her house. But I thought it was kind of cool that, okay, there's another way to sort of hide this like beauty of him. And he's blonde. So I'm just throwing that out there for those people who like blondes. Tamlin would be your person, um, not my person. And that's totally fine. <laughs> that was so harsh. I do have to say before I read any of Sarah J. Mass books, any of Jennifer L. Armentrout's, any of uh, Raven Kennedy's books. I really loved Blondes, but I have I have switched over to the dark side. Now I certainly need me a, a brunette, tall, dark, and handsome. Thank you. So while Feyre is at the spring court, Tamlin basically says she can go anywhere in Prithian. She doesn't have to stay there. But it's a beautiful home. And I don't know, she's scared. There are some creatures that she happens upon, like out in the wild. Out in the wild when she's out, you know, 
on the grounds that I'm just like, I don't know, it's kind of spooky. And so um, but she you start to realize that she is definitely not like being held in a dungeon. She has beautiful rooms that she's in. You know, it's very much like Stockholm syndrome happening. Um, but I don't know. I was kind of here for it. It's funny because one of the things I love about the way that Sarah writes books is that she will add in these turns of phrase that um, just become so great in, in immersing you in the story so in this series there is something called a cauldron and the cauldron is where everyone came from and in this book actually there is a depiction of the cauldron sort of spilling out and creating the lands of Prithian I think you know B minus on the accurate history so like there's an expression in this that's like cauldron no instead of it would be like you know heavens no it would be like cauldron boil me cauldron and I just love it there's a line where Lucian and Lucian seems to be the one who says a lot cauldron a lot and I kind of love it so I tab here it's like cauldron no <laughs> um Lucian is sassy I I think he's great he kind of comes in as a friend figure even though he's favorite doesn't know if she can trust these people and so it's, it's just I don't know I like their relationship I think you start to think as a reader when I was reading this I was like okay well is she maybe gonna fall in love with Lucian or is this gonna become some like Jacob Edward triangle happening um just you wait we also know that like Feyre likes to paint we're told that and she sometimes will look at things and think of how she would paint it and so Tamlin starts to pick up on this um, in their conversations uh, and tells her that there's a gallery in their house. This is the first moment where I was reading the book and I don't know, I'm almost halfway through it. It is an incredible slow burn. I mean, it is an incredible slow burn, but it is also an incredibly slow burn. And that tongue twista, I should get an award for saying. Um, but this line here, when I read it, I remember feeling just like the feels. It says, he smiled at me still, broadly and without restraint or hesitation. The feeling was startling enough that I walked out grasping the crumpled paper in my pocket as if doing so could somehow keep that answering smile from tugging on my lips. This is also, I don't know, it's an enemies to lovers trope too, I think. Thing. I mean, it's not, I don't know. I wouldn't say it's enemies to lovers. I would say it's captor to lovers. Captor, captive to lovers. But you start, I start to root for Tamlin here. I'm like, okay, there is something there. And what does she have to go back to? You start to look at the life that she has here in the spring court. And in my mind, I'm like, girl, why do you keep trying to escape? Stay there. Stay with the high lord. So, <laughs> uh Oh, that line. Okay, so Feyre is basically really trying to escape. She wants to get out. She wants to get home. She wants to get back to her family because of the promise that she made to her mom, which I, every time I read about that promise, I was like, I don't get why she gives so much of a shit about it. And maybe because I've never had to make a deathbed promise to somebody. Um, so maybe that's why I just didn't relate to it. But it just was bothering me. And I was like, girl, just fall in love with Tamlin and all will be great. But she's she's not agreeing with me. And so she is like, get me the hell out of here. It is a baddie place. She finds out that there's this creature called a surreal. And the surreal will tell you the truth of what you would like to know. But you have to capture it and it's very dangerous and deadly to capture it. But Lucian tells her how to capture it and she decides she's going to capture it and figure out how to get the heck away and I don't know some other stuff she's trying to figure out. She captures it because she's a badass. Feyre is a total badass and honestly I love her. I feel like she is scrappy. She's scrawny because she's I don't know been starving for the last 12 years or I don't know how many years but she's been starving. She's scrappy. I like her. Uh, she finds out from the surreal that Tamlin is not just some high fae of the spring court. He is the high lord of the spring court. What? Yeah, so she finds that out from the surreal and the surreal says this line, stay with the high lord and live to see everything righted. And so she takes that as, okay, well I need to stay with this high lord. She's been being fed from Tamlin and Lucian a little bit of information that she's like picking up on. There is this blight happening in Prithian. It's affecting everyone's magic. That's why they're all, everyone in their court is wearing masks because this thing is tampering with their magic and it's been happening for 50 years and there's like no way to cure it. So this cereal just comes in, spills the tea, and then scampers off to go and live another day, to go and rack up some more truths to tell. 
It's also just interesting to me because all of the room, not all of the rumors, but a lot of the rumors that the humans were told were true. I mean, there are these, oh, most of them aren't true. Fairy can lie and they they don't spike their food, just their wine and it's good actually. There are, I mean, there are deadly creatures like the Surreal and the Boggy and the Naga and all of the other creatures that are really deadly. So Favorite doesn't really know what to believe and but she does start to trust Tamlin and Lucian and as a reader I start to trust them too. I think that they are you you but you kind of know that something's going on because there's like loose references to this like she character. They're like oh she's up to something or was this her doing and but they're not telling Feyre any of that and this book is first person from Feyre's perspective so we don't get any of those information pieces only what um, they kind of want her to know so it's I don't know kind of interesting. Some of it's stuff she's overheard and some of it is stuff that you find out later she's been meant to overhear but some of the moments where I start to realize like not look at Tamlin necessarily as a captor but more as someone who she could potentially fall in love with is there's this argument early on with Lucian and Lucian wants her to go or doesn't think she you know should stay and he says the girl stays regardless of I don't know, whatever thing. You find out later that there is a thing. Uh, <laughs> but you start to, I, I don't know, I started to be like, oh, okay, like he really might start to care about her. And then when he finds out about the promise that she made to her mother and her mother's passing when she was so young, his response was just very tender to her. And so there are these sort of silver linings, <laughs> eyes lined with silver. Okay, so Sarah J. Mass, when she writes, she uses a lot of, similar terms or she'll repeat terms so one of those is like silver lined his eyes or my bowels turned watery or sucked on her tooth which I actually kind of love these sayings so yeah all that to say um keep keep an eye out for one of those uh five dollar sayings that's a good amount that's a good dollar amount a 50 cent saying would be bad speaking of 50 cent maybe 50 cent should do an intro song for this podcast I don't know he might love fantasy books okay so we're brought to a scene um and for me, it's really hard to get me to care enough about a character in a first book of a series to cry over that character's death. And I don't know why. It's my it's my cold heart. But there is a scene here where all of a sudden a fairy is brought in who's had their wings sliced off. This scene, I mean, absolutely gutted me when I read it. His wailing, his repeating of she took my wings, the fairy sobbed, she took them. Like it... It, I have goosebumps just thinking about what I felt like when I first read this part of the book. And it really became dark for me. And it was, the, I think, Feyre's first like glimpse into something really bad is happening in this land. Just, I, I uh, you know, this character is just randomly brought in and Feyre has such such sympathy for this it it is just like bleeds through who she is as a character to care so much about other people and and someone who's a fairy I mean she's been taught her whole life to fear them I just I had to call out that that was I mean it gutted me I was weeping weeping straight up weeping so Feyre's sort of, I don't know, accepting her life a little bit more in um, the spring court with Tamlin. Again, there's lots of stolen glances and half smiles and meals together. And I don't know, it's just so lovely. I It's, it's comforting <laughs> in the fucked up way that it is because she's straight up a captive. So Feyre learns that there is this, I don't know, event taking place called Kalanmai that all she's told is that Tamlin and Lucian are going to go and she needs to lock herself in her room and to like not come out and even if people are screaming for her to come out even if she's beckoned to it or called to it she is not to leave her room because it's dangerous for her and of course what does she do the second that they're all gone she hears drums and she feels a beat pulling her to the fires that have been lit in its Mai. it is fire night and she doesn't even know what's happening but she's led from her heart out into the dark and on the horizon she sees all these little bonfires and then she gets closer and realizes that I don't know a bunch of fairies are crowded around a cave and she doesn't see Lucian or Tamlin but she gets approached by these I don't know I think it's three lanky spooky evil fake creatures and they are trying to get her and all of a sudden she is approached and I'm just gonna read from the book there you are I've been looking for you said a deep sensual male voice I've never heard but I keep my eyes on the three fairies bracing myself for flight 
as the male behind me stepped to my side and slipped a casual arm around my shoulders. The three lesser fairies paled, their dark eyes wide. Thank you for finding her for me, my savior said to them, smooth and polished. Enjoy the right. There was enough of a bite beneath his last words that the fairies stiffened. Without further comment, they scuttled back to the bonfires. I stepped out of the shelter of my savior's arm and turned to thank him. Standing before me was the most beautiful man I've ever seen. Mm, I have full body goosebumps. I'm tingling in many places, one in particular. I mean, what? She's falling in love with Tamlin and then she says this is the most beautiful man she'd ever seen. Someone tell my best friend Brandy that this line existed because she told me that who we find out this is, his name is Resand, um, or Rysand, as I called him for the first four books until I learned that his name was supposed to be pronounced Resand. Somehow I changed it in my mind. She said that she thought that he was pale and stinky, had stinky breath. And honestly, that is blasphemy. Brandy, if you're listening to this, blasphemy. But it's just, what? You've never, I mean, I've never read a book where there is a love interest and it's pretty clear. And then a main character, first person, or narrator, but mainly the main character, first person, describes someone as the most beautiful person they've ever seen. Okay. Hmm. I'm interested. I'm intrigued. She gets away from Resand. She doesn't know his name's Resand um, at this point. She just thinks he's, I don't know, a tall, dark, and handsome fella who, um, well, fa- fairy. She knows he's a fairy and she knows he's not from the spring court because he doesn't have a mask on his face. Hence how she can see his beauty. Um, and I'm sure his breath smells freaking lovely. Uh, she gets away from him. She goes back to the house. She's like, okay, well, that was an experience. I am going back to bed. She is awoken in the middle of the night and wants even more in the middle of the night because this is in the middle of the night, but it's even later in the night. This night lasts very long. She wants to go get a snack because she just is sometimes a little bit of a spitfire. And I really like that about her. But she is like, I'm going to get a snack. And I don't care what Tamlin said. This is the first bit of spice that we come across in this book. And I mean, it's like, it's not even spice. It's like spice with a little bit of abuse. So Tamlin runs into her in the hallway. He's growling and clearly like under the influence of some type of magic or something. And he and Feyre have an exchange where he is like, I was looking for you all night and I wish it was you. Oh, come to find out that Kalanmai is basically where Tamlin, the head of the spring court, the high lord of the spring court, has to go and fuck some person in the cave and it like replenishes the land and they have to do it every year so that they have good crops in the spring court. They take this magic and it makes them all become super, super turned on and aroused. And then they all just like it turns into a big orgy. But Tamlin comes back and he is still clearly not satisfied. He is wanton Feyre. And so there is a like kind of spicy line here where he says, she asked me not to be gentle with her either. He snarled his teeth bright in the moonlight. He brought his lips to my ear. I would have been gentle with you, though. I shuddered as I closed my eyes. I would have had you moaning my name throughout it all, and I would have taken a very, very long time, Feyre. And ugh, I don't know. I don't care if Sand is the most beautiful man she had ever seen. This got me a little excited. And so, um, so yeah, and then he bites her. He bites her neck. And then the next morning they have this, like, I don't know, hilarious exchange over breakfast with Lucian. And it's one of the funniest things I've uh, ever read, actually. This is the first time where she's, like, openly accepting the fact that she is into Tam, Timmy Tam. That night, I think she even says that she, actually, it's, like, the next day or something like that. She has an exchange with him, and she says it's the first uh, night that she doesn't lock her bedroom door. So, again, very slow, very burning. We're over halfway through the book at this point and there's there's been I don't I don't even know if they kiss at that point in time I think he just bites her which hey you know let's get to it um I actually really like to be kissed though so do that too um speaking of kisses then you know skip along a little bit there is um the summer solstice which is a big thing in the seasonal courts and or this seasonal court in particular and so they have a solstice celebration Tamlin plays a fiddle I am on the internet side that that is fucking weird um sorry if anyone here plays a fiddle I would actually love to hear it because I can't even imagine what it sounds like now that I'm thinking about it they end up spending the night out all night dancing and she gets really 
I almost was going to say she gets really high on fairy wine. She does. She gets a very high on fairy wine and um, she's dancing around like a gosh darn fool. They're throwing themselves at each other and um, it's kind of sweet. He takes her away to see these like, I don't know, little little smaller, little probably actual little fairy creatures, wispies, I think they're called. He says to her, I think I might kiss you. And she says, then do it, which I also love that about Feyre. This is like a little bit of her coming into her own, which I think is really cool. They kiss and she... Um, says that that moment was the happiest moment of her life and it made I just I swelled when I read this part I felt like she had just had such a shitty life prior to this and even though she was taken there against her will she is experiencing so much and she's coming out of her shell so much and I just fucking ate it up happiest moment of her life happiest moment of my life reading this book so far uh yeah so shortly after this, you find out that things with this blight are getting a little bit worse. All of a sudden, Lucian, Tamlin, and Feyre are having lunch and everyone becomes rigid and they try and hide and glamour Feyre because there is a visitor coming to lunch. He's not coming to lunch. He's just, I don't know, showing up to um, talk to Tamlin and Lucian. And it turns out Feyre finds out out that it is the most beautiful man she's ever seen from Cal and Mai there to have a real harsh chat with Tamlin and Lucian and this moment I remember reading it and being like oh my gosh I hope he doesn't see her I hope he doesn't see her I hope he doesn't see her because they hide her behind Lucian they try and hide her scent from Resand and then you find out in this scene that he's not just Resand he's not just Reese he's not just Rysand he's not just Rice He's the High Lord of the Night Court, which Feyre has come to know through the conversation with the other fellas she's been living with that he is a straight up baddie psychopath and um, it's like slices heads off and leaves them on the front porch as a gift. Hey, he even walks into this lunch and says, hey, do you like the gift I left you? And he, you know, releases his talents against Feyre's mind in this moment once he discovers she's there. And it's really confusing. He basically makes Tamlin beg on his hands and knees to um, not tell someone who is the she that we have been hearing about. Turns out her name is Amarantha and she is calling herself, I don't know, the High Queen of Prithian. I can't remember what she's calling herself, but she's basically putting herself above all of the High Lords of Prithian. It's actually kind of funny because Feyre at one point in time in this series, actually in this book, asks Tamlin, is there such thing as a high lady? And he says, there's no such thing. They're all high lords. So Rhysand knows that she's there and he makes Tamlin beg. Tamlin begs and then he asks Feyre for her name. She gives Rhysand a fake name of this girl from her village back home and he leaves. The very next night or I don't know shortly thereafter um, Tamlin is basically like I'm sending you away like it's too dangerous for you here. Shit is getting bad and you gotta roll out. It has been great kissing you. It's been great biting your neck while I'm under the influence but I gotta let you go because I don't want anything to happen to you which you start to think oh he really must care about her. But I was like, hell no, I don't want to read more about her back in her shitty town. Oh, one thing I forgot is that he basically took care of her family when she left. He, I don't know, gave them a bunch of riches. He glamored them all into thinking that she was away with like a rich aunt. And so they're doing great. They are happy she's out of there because um, they didn't seem to love her that much. And now they have their money back and they think that it's all due to this rich aunt. So um, they're not hurting. And she knows this. So she doesn't want to leave. But Tamlin makes her leave and Lucian throws a big fit. We don't really know why. We find out later but she leaves she goes home and she is there for a few nights she actually finds out which this I didn't remember this from my first read and so this was really interesting to me but Nesta actually tries to find Feyre because the glamour that Tamlin put on the family didn't work on Nesta. And so Nesta like tried to cross the wall and go into Prithian, which for someone who was treating her sister so poorly for her to have this um I don't know, sense of sisterly responsibility or duty or love. It really tug, <laughs> tugged on my heartstring, even though, you know, obviously it's like the bare minimum. But it shows that there is something there between them as sisters. And I even flagged a part where it says, Nesta snorted, her face grave and full of that long simmering anger that she could never master. He stole you away into the night, claiming some nonsense about the treaty. And then everything went on as if it never happened. It wasn't right. None of it was right. And I just, I loved that moment for 
favorite because she got to see someone who cared about her even in the smallest of ways back because she always gave so much for her sisters and for her father and for everyone else um and she's about to give a whole lot fucking more so um just i don't know this is like a disclaimer in general for any sarah j mass book you think you know what's gonna happen you think you have an idea she's gonna go back they're gonna be in love but the last hundred pages of any sarah j mass book really just it like puts it in to a cauldron and mixes it around and then pulls out some crazy amazing addictive shit it, it is it's crack just prepare yourself this is what's happening we're coming up on the last hundred pages here Feyre decides that she she has a moment and she's like I've got to go back because she finds out that Claire better the name of that fake name that she gave Cerise Sand the whole family had died she realizes that it's from the blight and this you know horrific amarantha and so Feyre decides uh, the illiterate human that she is you find she's illiterate it's a thing Tamlin writes her um what does he write her Nim Limlicks? Limericks. He writes her a bunch of limericks with these words that she's trying to remember or trying to look up the definitions. So he writes her a bunch of limericks. Limericks and plays the fiddle. What more could you ask for? (laughs) Yeah, she decides to go back. She decides that whatever is going on is way too bad if they went and killed the humans over it. And when she arrives back at the spring court, she finds the place ransacked. She finds Alice, her lovely lady in wait that she had for the past few months, is there frantically packing. And Alice like lays on some surreal truth. You find out that Amarantha is the blight and that she is responsible for all of this. Feyre also finds out that Amarantha had put a curse on Tamlin and the entire spring court. And that curse has come to fruition. Time is up because they couldn't break it. And so she's come and taken him and Lucian and the entire court under the mountain. What? Alice lays this truth on her. And I'm just going to read this section because uh, to this day, I still don't know what the curse was on Tamlin. um, And I've read this like 17 times. My brain just can't wrap its head around it. (laughs) Oh, also Amarantha's court is called Under the Mountain. And it's like a devious place that's modeled after the court of the night court. Another minus one for Resand for being in such a devious court. But basically what you find out is that if Tamlin wants to break the curse that she put on him, he has 50 or 49 years, seven times seven years to do so. If he wants to break the curse, he needs to only find a human girl willing to marry him, but not any girl, a human with ice in her heart, with hatred for our kind, a human girl willing to kill a fairy. Um, Worse, the fairy that she killed had to be one of his men sent across the wall by him like lambs to the slaughter. The girl could only be brought here to be courted if she killed one of his men in an unprovoked attack, killed him for hatred alone, and just as Jurian did to Clithia, which we don't need to get into that right now. We can get into that later in the series. And when I was reading this, I was like, oh my God, I am pissed. So again, deceit, lies. He brought her there under false pretenses because... He was trying to break this curse. I mean, it's Beauty and the Beast. I don't know why I was surprised that there was a curse that she was part of that had to break. And that was the exact same thing. But it's kind of the opposite. It's twisted on its ear. It's instead of love in her heart, it's hatred in her heart. And you brought back to that moment in your mind where you're like, oh, she really did hate that fairy at the beginning. And she really did. But he sent her away. And um, she came back and she's like, I'm going fucking under the mountain. And I am going to save his ass. And I don't know, spoiler alert, she does. She saves everyone's ass. She is known as the curse breaker, but I will break it down a little bit more for you. Uh, She goes under the mountain and immediately she's thrust in front of Amarantha. She sees Claire Better's dead and mutilated body up on uh, the wall. And she is immediately struck with like the first, I would say, big ping of trauma and guilt from this situation that she has been a part of. And this, in my mind, is where her soul really starts to go through the ringer. When she comes out of this, she is not the same person at all as she was when she went in. As she starts to go through this, you know, last hundred pages under the mountain, things really change for her. When I was reading this for the first time, I was really annoyed with this under the mountain part because I just, I don't know, I think I just wanted a happy ending. I was not invested in like the long haul. I was like, let me just like, let her come back. I don't, what is this under the mountain? What is this Midgard worm? You know, what are these things she has to do? 
But as I started to read it, I became even deeper, deeper in. Like I almost resisted being brought more into the story and being immersed. And then I was like, fuck it. And I just dropped right on in to the throne room in Under the Mountain. And I am watching this through Feyre's eyes. So basically Amarantha says to her, because she is trying to take Tam Tam all for herself. And oh, Resand has been sleeping with Amarantha for the last like four 49 years um, since he's been under the mountain and everyone calls him Amarantha's whore. Feyre is surprised when she gets under the mountain and she sees that Tamlin is up on the dais with Amarantha with like a stone face. He's not even reacting to Feyre being there. Like he's very much just like statuesque stone face, even with his mask on. The whole curse was put on him was because apparently he didn't want Amarantha. And so she's been fucking resand, but she really wants Tamlin to be her big daddy T. She puts this curse on him when Feyre comes and is like, I love Tamlin. She's like, you're insignificant human trash. I am going to make you a bargain. And the bargain is that she needs to complete three trials. And if she does, then Amarantha will let Tamlin and the rest of the spring court go. If Feyre doesn't, then she will die. Everyone thinks, I don't know, she's an illiterate human. She's, of course, going to die. Tamlin, the only response you get from him under the mountain is like his eyes widen one time here, as if to say no. She agrees. Amarantha also says that uh, she has a riddle. And if Feyre can answer her riddle, she will release the spring court immediately. And Feyre's like, well, wait a tick. You're not going to release him immediately if I win three trials? Um, She doesn't, spoiler alert. So this is the riddle. And I honestly, I had a moment where I was like, look, these books are incredible. After I read everything that Sarah's written. It's it's great. It's chef's kiss. It's the best shit I've ever read in my life. But this riddle was easy as hell to answer. And even if I couldn't read, I could answer it. This is a riddle. See if you can get it. There are those who seek me a lifetime, but we never meet. And those I kiss, but who trample me beneath ungrateful feet. At times I seem to favor the clever and the fair, but I bless all those who are brave enough to dare. By large, my ministrations are soft-handed and sweet, but scorned, I become a difficult beast to defeat. For though each of my strikes lands a powerful blow, when I kill, I do it slow. And I read this and I said, oh my God, it's love. The answer to this riddle is love. And I swear to God's, if it's love, I'm going to lose my mind. It was love. But she doesn't answer it yet because Vera is like, I have no fucking clue what the answer to that riddle is. So three tasks. The first task is she has to battle this Midgard worm, which uh, me and I think a lot of the people who initially read this thought it was an actual like an earthworm. It's not. A worm is a type of dragon that doesn't have arms or legs or wings or whatnot. But during this trial, you start to see that Resand is kind of being a little vocal about Feyre's abilities in a positive way. And there's a conversation that's happening where um, someone says, what's that? What's it doing? Meaning the worm. It says a deep, elegant voice replied this time. She's building a trap, Resand. But the Midgard relies on its scent to see, Resand answered. And I gave a special glower for him as I glanced at the rim of the trench and found him smiling at me. And Feyre just became invisible. His violet eyes twinkled. I made an obscene gesture before I broke into a run, heading straight for the worm. Obscene gesture is another one of those $5 sayings that Sarah writes that I just kind of live for. Feyre is flipping people off all the time and I can't get enough of it. We also find out that after she beats the worm, which she does, that everyone was betting against her except for one person. Who might that one person be? So that was a little interesting. It's Resand. So do with that what you will. I had texted a friend at this point in time and I was like, I kind of want her to be with this Resand guy now, even though I know that he's evil and I know that he's like the High Lord of the Night Court, which is the baddie court. I just kind of love, I start to love their banter and their interactions. He goes down to her cell one night after she has been um, attacked by the worm. She's dying. She's straight up on her on her last breaths. She has been, her arm is infected, it's broken, and she is about to go down the drain. And he comes in and he um, decides that he's going to make a bargain with her. He says that if she gives him two weeks every month at the night court spent with him, that he will heal her arm. She, like the spitfire that she is, uh, tries to bargain with him back. And she says five days. And he says 10 days. And she says a week. And he says a week it is. And so they make a bargain. The moment that this bargain happens, her arm breaks out in a tattoo that goes up to her um, elbow. And it has an eye on the palm of her hand. And she says, you didn't tell me that was going to happen. And he was like, you didn't ask. It just sort of creates this thought 
in her mind, she realizes, and I'm realizing this as I'm reading it, that he thinks she's going to live. He's making a bargain with her for the rest of her life, meaning she's going to have a long life, meaning he expects her to beat these tasks. He is in her corner, which she doesn't really understand why. And I didn't either. But in my mind, I'm like, oh, he must have, he must like like her. But you start to think that maybe it's because he's playing court scheming games and just wants to get back at Tamlin or make Tamlin jealous because they seem to have this, you know, back and forth of negative interactions. But yeah, so now you start to think, okay, well, wait, if she makes it out of this, she's going to the night court once a week, every every month for the rest of her life. So this is when I just started to flip flop going back and forth between Reese and he's coming down to help her. And I mean, yes, he's taking something in return and we don't really know his motives, but he's actually doing something and Tamlin is doing nothing. It was really upsetting to me that he was like not trying. It didn't seem like to help her to get her out. Nothing. Um, and Reese and was. But Rhysand is not all that great. What he's doing every single night is he's going down to Feyre's cell and having her painted with all these swirls all over her body so that he will see if anyone touches her, putting her in like scantily clad dresses, bringing her down to the parties that are happening, making her drink fairy wine and then dance on him all night long. So, I mean, it ain't a good look. Um, And we don't really know why he's doing that either. Uh, So I, I don't know. I think... Both of them kind of suck right now, to be honest. But the second trial rolls around and that trial is Feyre has to answer a riddle and pull a lever and the correct lever will stop this hot poker thing from squishing her and Lucian. And she's illiterate. It turns out that it seems like Amarantha is knowing a few little things about her and she um, tries to pull the wrong lever and that little eye on her palm starts to burn when she starts to pull the wrong one because Resand is connected to that. So that's when you start to think like, oh, there's actually some actual bond connection between him and this tattoo on her hand. And he saves her. He it doesn't burn when she's pulls the correct one. She actually I think this is kind of crazy. She um, is trying to like justify in her mind, like picking lever one, lever two and lever three, not within the constraints of the riddle but just with like the number one the number two the number three so she's like one is not good because it's just one person three is not good because it's like three sisters in a hovel or like three sisters like not getting along and the irony is the answer ended up being three which I thought was really interesting so she survives that one and then we're brought to sort of like the start of the climax of what's going on which is that she is down doing her you know dance fairy wine situation a few nights later and all of a sudden she She's has a brief moment where Tamlin walks in and they realize that they're alone together and um, they use that opportunity. He uses that opportunity to like steal a kiss and then they start to it's like the second part of some like spice in this book or the third. They start to get super handsy. They start to like rip each other's clothes a little bit. He's feeling her all over, smearing all of her paint. When I read this, I had two thoughts happening simultaneously. The first was that I was here for a little bit of spice and obviously I was rooting for them more so than anyone else at this point in time because of what Resand was making her do. So I like that but I didn't like the fact that when they this is the first chance that they've had together and he doesn't say a word to her he doesn't ask how she is he doesn't try and get her out he just tries to fuck her and I that just didn't set well with me and while you know there are it seems like multiple love interests in my mind it just was like kind of a tally against him it went in the con pile of he didn't really say anything or do anything to try and understand all of this trauma that she's going through I mean it was traumatic to almost kill Lucian and to almost die herself in the um in the first trial and almost kill Lucian in the second trial so as they're in the throes of it Resand clears his throat he is in the room it's almost like he just appeared in the room and he basically is like if Amarantha finds you in here you guys are stupid as hell and you need to stop this and get out of there so Tamlin leaves I think he does say I love you before he leaves Rhysan and Feyre start talking and they're in the middle of a conversation and all of a sudden Rhysan like lunges on her and like smashes into her mouth and kissing her and he's like sticking his tongue in her throat and short and she's like get the heck off of me and then shortly thereafter the door opens and Amarantha is standing there and you realize that he did it so that he could protect her from getting in trouble Tamlin's hands were mysteriously void of void devoid 
Devoid clean of the paint and the paint showed up on Rhysand's hands. So he did a little a little magical switcheroo to save her yet again. I mean, the tally for the number of times this man has saved her life, I think is at four now. Yeah, I think it's at like four because I didn't even mention he didn't tell Amarantha that it wasn't Claire because he could have known he's seen her. No, he just covered for her there too. So these are all just some little tallies on the side of Resand. And I definitely had texted a friend and was like, wait, I want her to be with this guy now. And she's like, well, who's that guy? And I was like, I don't know. He's a baddie and he's not blonde, which is so confusing to me. A lot of this was confusing to me. Also, after the second trial, Pharaoh was losing her mind. She was super upset. This is the first time that you realize Resand is speaking to her in her mind. And he's telling her, don't cry. Don't let her see you cry. Stand firm, stand tall, walk out of here. And he's really, it seems like in her corner and he's speaking to her in her mind. Like, what is this? One of the things he says is, good girl, now walk away. Turn on your heel. Good. Walk toward the door. Keep your chin high. Let the crowd part one step after another. He's cheering her on. Ugh, I'm so confused. And right after that happens, he comes down to her room later that night and she is like losing her mind. She is heartbroken. She's weeping. She is so sad. And he, this is one of the weirdest things and I kind of just loved it. And I'm wondering what it was like for Sarah's editors to read this and be like, what? But also, oh my God, this is so, this is like, it's, what does that mean? I don't know, but it's provocative. <laughs> So basically, she's weeping. He sits down next to her and then he licks her tears away. I pulled away, but his hands were like shackles. I could do nothing as his mouth met with my cheek and he licked away a tear. His tongue was hot against my skin, so startling that I couldn't move as he licked away another path of salt water and then another. He chuckled as I scrambled for the corner of my cell. <laughs> and she like loses it on him. She's like, that's disgusting. And she's like, get out. You're This is disgusting. The very end of that chapter, though, it says it took me a long while to realize that Resand, whether he knew it or not, had effectively kept me from shattering completely. And that just, I don't know, had a little little heart palpitation there for for good old Reese or bad old Reese, depending how you look at it. There are some other moments between um, Farah and Resand during this time, because this is like a three month period that she's stuck under the mountain. She, you start to realize that he's just coming down there and having conversations with her. He's like, I just need some peace and quiet. Like I'm losing it also. And he starts to confide in her a little bit, not, not fully, but they start to have a rapport and build a banter and a relationship. And it's a little bit more open because obviously she's not talking to Tamlin at all. So it just feels like even, even when Tamlin was under the curse, he was he couldn't say anything because he was under the curse and he, they were on, on mouth lockdown. Well, not mouth lockdown, but words lockdown. They could definitely do stuff with their mouths. So there was a lot he couldn't say and it felt like she was left out of the loop. And it seems like Resand is bringing her into the loop a little bit more, at least with what's going on with him. I think they start to build a little bit of a relationship. The third trial rolls around. That trial is that Feyre needs to kill three fairies and then Amarantha will let the spring court go. This trial undoes her. This, it, it unravels her. Because she does it. She kills the first two fairies. And at this point in time, I mean, she has completely disintegrated in her spirit and she is completely broken. It is irreparable in her mind what she has done. And she is, feels so much guilt. There's so much ruminating and and disturbing back and forth on what to do and how to help but she does it and when she takes the mask or the mask the sack off of the third fairy's head fairy fairy fairy's head she finds out that it's tamlin and she has to kill tamlin she has to stab him in the heart Oh my God, Amarantha's crazy. At this point in time, I was still confused about some of the rules of the bargains, some of the rules of the initial curse. And so I was just like, oh, of course, now she's going to have to kill Tamlin, who I still in my heart wanted her to be with. And I wanted there to be some explanation as to why he was so quiet and why he wasn't saying anything and why he was just standing there the whole time and not trying to help her or get her out. She then starts to think because Alice told her right before she came under the mountain, like, hey, you got to listen, listen to what you overheard for the last few months what before you were under the mountain and so she starts to realize amarantha would not make any bargain or put tamlin in any situation that was not advantageous to her if she wants to be with tamlin then tamlin maybe can't die and sh she starts like shuffle through all of these things that she's been made to overhear and it turns out i will spoil it no more i mean i will spoil it more i'll spoil it now that tamlin 
has part of the curse has a heart of stone so that she turned his heart to stone. Feyre says, well, I can stab him and it won't kill him. So she does and it doesn't kill him. And then Amarantha refuses to let anyone go because she did. Well, I never said when I would let everyone go. And so she it starts to be like the Avengers start happening. Well, the Avengers are not in this book, but the Avengers Marvel would be a great sponsor for this podcast, I would think. Marvel, all the different characters, all the different magic abilities and superheroes hell yeah so let's get on it I would like to be with spider boy thank you but yeah so basically it turns into like this big brawl Amarantha starts using mind magic to hurt Pharah Rhysand tries to fight Amarantha and his favorite is like he's screaming my name like he cares about me it's Rhysand what is going on and then Tamlin I don't know I think he's like slumped over because he's been stabbed <laughs> Ferris says oh my god I know the riddle I know the answer to the riddle it's love and she says that right before Amarantha snaps her neck so Amarantha snaps Ferris neck Tamlin and everyone in the spring courts masks fall to the ground Tamlin gets all of his power back so he is pissed he goes to Amarantha and stabs her with a sword thrown by Lucian to him so they do the little parlay stab her he throws her throat out Amarantha's dead Amarantha's dead be gone poof be gone. Get out of here. Resand. The bond gets a little bit more funky and faceted uh, because Feyre, although she's dead, can now see herself through Resand's eyes. And she sees what's playing out in the throne room. After Amarantha dies, she sees that some of the High Lords are going up to Tamlin, who's holding her in his arms, and giving a drop of light to her. And all of the High Lords are doing it. And Resand goes to do it at the very last one, or second to Tamlin. It says, Rhysand stepped forward, bringing my shred of soul with him, which is through the bargain that they made. Bringing my shred of soul with him, I found Tamlin staring at me, at us. For what she gave, Rhysand said, extending a hand, will bestow what our predecessors have granted to few before. Then Tamlin puts a piece of light in her, and then she comes back as a high fae. She comes back as a high fae, and the first thing that she thinks is, I, I wasn't truly dead, meaning I had killed those I had the room spun. The first thing that comes out of her mouth, in her not out of her mouth, but in her mind, after she is awakened, awoken as High Fae, is the guilt that she feels for killing those two fairies. And this is, I think, just so core to the fact that she is walking out of Under the Mountain, such a different person with such different needs than when she walked in. And it breaks my heart that she went and sacrificed so much and she is just forever changed. She is gone through such extreme trauma and trauma of choice and trauma of action for what she's had to do for what she thinks is the greater good because the majority of it was saving the people of the different courts from Amarantha and not her love of Tamlin um, and that's why she was going to plunge the knife in herself at the end because she wasn't to be with Tamlin at, at, in the end it was to save everyone from this cruel ruler and I just thought that was so interesting that when she awoke it wasn't oh Tamlin's holding me or oh he's I can see his face it was I killed them then she obviously looks at his face and touches it and kisses it a bunch and then they sleep together we're nearing the end here I liked the fact that they had some alone like downtime after all of this drama under the mountain before they were able to go home to the spring court and it's like I think this one of the steamier scenes of the book where they she decides she doesn't want to think about this for right now and the this meaning the murder and the all she's endured and she just wants to be with Tamlin and they you know sleep together and then she is pulled it says I was pulled from sleep by something tugging at my middle a thread deep inside and she followed it and she knew immediately that it was Resand who was beckoning her they have a brief conversation interaction that just feels to me open it's honest it's the beginning of some type of honest and transparent rapport that's kind of how it felt to me he asks her how it feels to be Faye and she is honest with him in a way that I just haven't seen her with Tamlin and it just felt meaningful earlier we find out that Rhysand has wings that he can summon so he you know his wings are out and it's funny because the wings are described immediately when they're told that they're like membranous bat wings and in my mind I just didn't picture them like that I picture them like raven's wings and so in subsequent books when any wings are discussed it took me a really long time to 
to wrap my mind around the fact that I like bat wings, but I, I think they look good on them. Right before they say their goodbyes, there's just a weird moment. And I remember when I was reading it being like, hmm, I'm just going to remember that for the next book because that's got to mean something. It says, he bowed at the waist, those wings vanishing entirely and had begun to fade into the nearest shadow when he went rigid. His eyes locked on mine, wide and wild, and his nostrils flared. Shock, pure shock, flashed across his features at whatever he saw on my face, and he stumbled back a step. Actually stumbled. What is, I began, he disappeared. Simply disappeared, not a shadow in sight. Like, what was that? Confusing and very spooky and a little curious. And then that's the last page. The very end, she and Tamlin walk through under the mountain out into the spring court. I remember when I read the last line, which is let's go home, I said and took his hand. I was like, oh, wow, I kind of want them to get married. (laughs) So I am a flip flopper on who I love in this, but that's the story. That's where it ends up. Again, such a fun read, such a twist and turn and so comforting in the weirdest way and also incredibly traumatic. It's everything you want and more. This is what I told everyone who I was trying to convince to read this book. What I also tell people when I'm trying to convince them to read it is that if they're just gonna read book one, then they don't need to read it. Because while this is a good book, you have no idea what is coming for you in book two. Book two is, I would say, not arguably, definitively, most people's favorite book, not only in this series, but in if they enjoy this genre and read these types of books as a whole. It is the celebrated book. And so of the friends who I've recommended this to, I've said, please just at least commit to reading at least halfway through the second book. And if you're not into it, which not a single one has DNF'd it, then you can stop. But this really just sets the scene for what is to come in A Court of Mist and Fury. So if you have read this series, if you have read um, Sarah J. Mass's work, then I invite you to listen to the next episode, uh, Quarter of Thorns and Roses, episode B, which will talk about a lot of the foreshadowing from this book for the rest of the series. And for those of you who are in the thick of it, who've maybe just read this book, please keep going. It's so good. So just for the record, I would reread it because I have so many times. I've recommended it so many times, so I would recommend it. And I would never return it. I would throw myself under the mountain, sell my soul to Amarantha before returning this book, I tell you. One other thing I want to mention is that when I started reading these books, they became, they just really like brought out a lot of emotion in me um, and some of the tropes in the later books in particular. And I started a list in my phone in the notes section and the name of this note is what I found captivating. I'll read the ones for Akatar. This is the Akatar series, but I won't read anything that's a spoiler for future books. But I will read what I put on here because I think it's really interesting. So what I found captivating, Akatar, The banter, the friendship and conversation and honesty, the desire, the quiet confidence, the certainty and patience within that. Stay with the High Lord is all in capital letters. So yeah, those are just some of the things that resonated with me. I'll read the rest of them in the coming books. And then I have a special one just for A Court of Silver Flames because this is not a spoiler, but while I love A Court of Mist and Fury, like everyone else, the book that resonated with me personally the most was Silver Flames. And that one divides the fandom. So I will be interested to hear how people feel about that when I cover that book. But more importantly, I'm interested to hear about how you feel about A Court of Thrones and Roses. Have you read the book? Do you enjoy Tamlin's limerick and fiddle making? Do you at this point wish her ship to be with Tamlin? Do you wish her ship to be with Resan? Do you think she's going to end up going to that spooky ass night court once a month? Do you want her to be with Lucian? Hail Mary. Head on over to my TikTok, Kayla and PDX, or my Instagram, What's Her Fantasy Podcast, and let me know. In the meantime, I'll just be over here weeping through my reread of the rest of this series and seriously considering whether I am Team Beast or Team Bat after the end of this book. I'm Team Bat. Ugh, or am I? (laughs) 